the first season I really enjoyed, but then that sort of coincided with my behavior being more destructive and reckless and the whole nature of Maiden Chelsea was very chaotic and ungrounded and I didn't have any tools to kind of bring me back down. I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. We had no sort of help with how to navigate fame, which is such a complicated beast in itself, especially in your coming of age when you're 21 years old. And then I decided to kind of duck out of the whole thing because it just no longer felt aligned. And then it just got to the point where it was unsustainable and something had to give. Hello to all the amazing Heart to Healing listeners. I can't believe we've already come to the end of season three. I've absolutely loved all of your wonderful comments about the episodes. And just to know that it's been a real comfort for some of you going through your own struggles has felt incredibly rewarding. I feel like we've already got such a brilliant and inspiring community, and I really can't wait for that to expand every season. So summer has begun, and I know it's usually a time to rest, reset, and enjoy yourselves. But I'd love to share a few more bonus episodes with you that I've recorded, which are too good to wait until the next season. So welcome to the summer specials. On today's episode, I'm joined by podcaster, author, former Maiden Chelsea cast member, and a very old friend of mine, Kagi Dunlop. Kagi is well known for her podcast, Saturn Returns, which is designed to help listeners feel calm during times of transitions, particularly during our late 20s, which is a time that often brings big periods of change and unrest in many aspects of our lives. Kagi has recently written a book inspired by her hugely popular podcast, where she shares personal stories, expert advice, and empowers readers to embrace their own spiritual journey. Kagi knows firsthand how challenging this period is, and has been very open about feeling unsettled during her 20s, struggling with both anxiety and depression, and drinking in a destructive way. I am thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to her today about what she did to overcome the discomfort, to learn to accept herself, and ultimately to improve her mental health. So you have described yourself as quite an overthinker growing up and being quite riddled with anxiety and feeling a bit of an imposter in social situations. I'd love you to tell us a bit about your character as a young girl and a teenager. I wouldn't have necessarily described myself as anxious when I was young. I don't, like I was thinking about that. I don't think I was particularly anxious when I was young. It was really when big social situations started to happen and more as I got older, I then sort of had this coping strategy of like, I drink. And it is really apparent and clear now when I go to social things and I feel that feeling. I just guess I didn't really acknowledge it that much as it was creeping up and developing. And it was perhaps more heightened in my 20s than my teen years. But as a teenager and a young girl, I went through this transition, I guess, when I was about 16. I'd say pre-16, I was more, I looked very young, as you will remember. I looked very, very young for my age. I was very small. And whilst you may remember me as like a confident girl with lots of friends because we knew each other from the Isle of Wight so we spent many many summers together I actually felt quite insecure about myself and my height massively and didn't really feel like I blossomed into a woman when everyone else was I was quite a late developer and I found that quite painful and then when I sort of was about 16 
I then went to boarding school, changed schools, and I guess I suddenly started to look a bit different and was treated quite differently for that. So there was very much this shift around that time. And I think that that's when I started performing to more of an idea of a version of myself that I was perceived as, maybe, Mm -hmm. rather than being truthful to who I am. I think when we're young, we base our identity off how we interact with other people and the feedback we get. And so that was an interesting part of my life that I'm kind of unraveling quite a lot at the moment. Yeah, it's really interesting because obviously, as you say, I have such memories of you being this very vivacious, confident, beautiful girl who all the guys would chase every summer. And I'll never forget just this vision. The first vision I had of you was you coming down the high street on your bike with one of those micro scooters on your handlebars (laughs) and just thinking, oh my God, that girl's like a Millie Kylie Minogue. And just having this absolute like, God, I've got to be a part of the cool gang because she's the ringleader and I want to be her friend. And it's so interesting how so many of us suffered from that slight feeling of either we weren't quite good enough or we didn't fit in or as you say you had an insecurity about your height you know as one of my best friends I didn't have a clue that you had an insecurity about your height and we just so often wear these masks where we hide all that stuff and it is curious yeah I also think you know to add a bit of context to it for the listeners we we grew up spending summers together in the Isle of Wight in this village called Seaview where everyone knows everyone and it's an amazing thing because it's like this big extended family we've all known each other forever you know that was my kind of role down there where I perhaps was a little bit more confident because I felt a bit more sure of myself and slotted in whereas back at school maybe I didn't and I felt more insecure about myself Mm. so I think everyone kind of experiences that where in different environments it brings out a different aspect of them yeah that's very true and actually I remember when we used to talk between summers and see each other in London occasionally you know we do adopt very different personas as like the summer version and then there's the rest of the year version and I think when you went off to boarding school and you were clearly very unhappy and I spoke to you a bit during that time I and it was a very very short window because you I mean I think you went for a few weeks wasn't it yeah I was there I think for half a term yeah and I remember suddenly you descended into this real cloud of depression and for me that was such a surprise because obviously I only knew you as being this very happy lively character yeah it's interesting I'm gonna sort of eat my words because it was more of a like acute anxiety and this unbearable emotion that would come over me when I was I was so so homesick and that part of my life is an interesting one to revisit because like you said, we have the versions of ourselves that we are in certain scenarios and, and more specifically than that with individuals, you know, like, and I was always quite a chameleon by nature. I would be quite different for the different people I was around and stuff like that. But that school experience was tremendously painful, I think, for a number of reasons. I I wasn't really ready to leave home and I felt like I didn't have much choice in that as someone I spoke to about was like did you fully consent and I was like no I did not (laughs) (laughs) and also it's like I understand the privilege in being given that opportunity to go you know to a boarding school and all of those things and whilst that's important to acknowledge I also felt a sense of like abandonment and 
wanted to be in the nest. I wanted to be at home. I wanted to be with my mum. And during that time, my parents were very much on the rocks and they, they soon got divorced when I kind of returned from back from that school and went back to my old school. So I think there was an awareness that something at home wasn't quite right. And also just the environment wasn't, I, yeah, I just didn't enjoy it boarding school then. I enjoyed it, you know, a few years later when I felt like I was ready, mm. but not at 13. Yeah, that was a painful time because I was, it really brought out that sort of sadness mm. in me. I felt a lot of shame in not being able to endure it and having to leave. I mean, you do have this melancholic side to you that I do. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I think people often looked at our friendship and people would be slightly puzzled that we were such good friends and we connected. And I mean, particularly, I'd say friends who are slightly more quieter by nature, slightly more subdued. And when you have that outward persona of being this sort of fast, racy character, and in fact, we always used to connect on a much deeper level. And we used to have quite, I'd say, quite philosophical conversations from a very young age. Mm -hmm. And I would just say to people, you don't see the side of Kagi that I see. Like, it's just... I have a friendship with her that doesn't really operate on that party drinking sort of plane. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because you yourself have named your alter ego in public. So I can say <laughs> Katrina, <laughs> who comes out when Kagi used to drink and party quite hard. And when Katrina came out, I knew it was time for Pandora to go home. <laughs> <laughs> Katrina didn't know no. Katrina didn't really know anyone to be honest <laughs> no Katrina the next day was definitely firmly put to bed um, and told her to go into the naughty corner for a few days for a few years um, hopefully yeah but it is interesting because I had gone through that whole boarding school breakdown slightly earlier and so watching from a distance you going through it I think also made me just think okay Kagi and I have got a lot in common and it and it is just, for me, it just showed that there were many more parts of you that were just that very thoughtful, empathetic side. And I think boarding school for our types can actually be overwhelming because you're such an empath that actually being suddenly in this crowd of people who are all your own age, who you have to be with 24-7 and you're sort of almost Cohab taking... Cohabitate with as well. It's, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're having to take on all their emotions as well as your own and you're then trying to, as you say, you're moulding yourself into the person that you think they want you to be. And in fact, it's all so overwhelming because not only that, you're also away from home, you're feeling abandoned. I just think it can be overwhelming for anxious, hypersensitive overthinkers, mm. uh, which I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we both definitely were. Yeah, you know, the piece you mentioned around having that alter ego and that version of myself that a lot of people thought was me, and perhaps it was in many ways. And you could, I guess it could be a bit of a duality that I had this more melancholic, introspective, more truthful version of myself that I feel I've definitely reclaimed mm. in the last couple of years and stepped into a lot more assertiveness whereas I think when I was growing up I felt like those aspects of myself should be hidden or mm. you know they weren't the aspects I was going to lead with and I kind of crafted a version of myself that I thought I needed to be and I think we all do that to various degrees. It's finding your tribe eventually and when you come to that and it's very interesting about Saturn Returns because for you that was just so aligned with what you totally. were at that shift. Yeah. And it was extraordinary how it just really did coincide exactly with your late 20s. I know. And for people like yourself that have known me 
my whole life to kind of see that quite, I guess, dramatic shift that mm. really happened over that period is quite interesting. Yeah, because I'm curious, when you got offered the part in Made in Chelsea, was there a part of you that thought, this is too much, I can't do this, this is not me? Or did you see it as an opportunity that presented itself and it was like, you know what, I'm not enjoying university, I just want to go for it? At that point, I'd already left university and I think I'd come back from, I'd come back from drama school in New York. And I guess I had, you know, at that point I was already occupying the sort of London party scene. I, I knew quite a lot of people. I was sort of playing into that quite a lot. And then the opportunity came around and it was, I was very much on the fence from the beginning. I remember weighing up the pros and cons and I'd say maybe looking back, it wasn't like a straightforward yes, to be honest. And my reasoning for doing it was a lot around, you know, we, as a family, we didn't really know anything about the entertainment industry. Reality TV was completely new. And it sort of was like, well, maybe this will be an opening and open some doors and create some opportunities, which in many ways it did, but it also closed a few. And for me also, singing was something that I loved doing in private. I'd never done it publicly before. And I, I was absolutely terrified to sing in front of anyone. And they sort of hooked me in by creating this storyline that in the first episode I would perform. And for me, that was really it because it was like, if I could slay that dragon, if I could defeat that terrifying fear I had of performing by doing it to that degree on the first time, then that would be such an accomplishment. And then perhaps it, I'd get over that fear and and who who knew what would happen. And so I did that. And I, I'm so like looking back, I cannot believe that I had that courage to go from not being able to actually sing in drama school because I was so scared to suddenly performing in front of all my family and friends with five cameras filming me. But I guess I didn't, we didn't really know what we were getting into. I don't even think the producers really know, knew. It was all making up as we went along a little bit. And I think quite soon after it started, the first season I really enjoyed. But then that sort of coincided with my behavior being more destructive and reckless. And the whole nature of the show felt very chaotic and ungrounded. And so did I. So it was like externally, everything was mad. And internally it was as well. So I felt very unsteady and I didn't have any tools to kind of bring me back down. I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. We had no sort of help with how to navigate fame, which is such a complicated beast in itself, especially in your coming of age when mm. you're 21 years old. And then I decided to kind of duck out of the whole thing because it just no longer felt aligned. And, you know, to echo what we were talking about, for a lot of my late teens and early 20s, I was sort of playing into this version of myself because I wanted to be liked and loved and accepted by all. And in many ways, Maiden Chelsea was a manifestation of that. You know, it was like the persona of the it girl that I remember witnessing growing up girls like that and thinking, if only I was like them, then I wouldn't feel these feelings. Mm. When really I felt very, you know, melancholic, I would write poetry about things and experiences that I hadn't even experienced. I always kind of 
equate it to it felt like I was born with a broken heart. And I think a lot of creative people do. And they're often hypersensitive as well. And so I kind of numbed that sensitivity by playing into this persona, partying a lot, drinking a lot. And then it just got to the point where it was unsustainable and something had to give. It's interesting though that you decided that, because I mean, you were the first person to quit the show. Yeah. really and actually the first person on and the first yeah. person off yeah. but yeah I mean and and actually ironically it's extraordinary how you were so quick to realize that it didn't serve you because I think for a lot of the cast members who subsequently quit or have, have gone on a journey themselves it took them a lot longer to come to that realization so your level of emotional maturity was quite high and considering you didn't have any therapy during that time or anyone to guide you it's quite amazing that you did manage to pull yourself out and extract yourself from what could have potentially then morphed into a really dangerous beast, as you say. Yeah, it depends what way you look at it. And I've sort of analysed it many times, but I just, it was a very innate knowing that that wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. Mm. That wasn't my destiny. But it's hard when you've got people around you and an audience telling you it is and being like, oh, well, you've got all these opportunities and you can leverage it this way and create this and it just didn't feel right for me I think I get a very strong intuition about that kind of stuff but equally when I quit I sort of had this idea that everything was just going to fall into place perfectly and unfold wonderfully and, and it really didn't I went into this kind of no man's land for a while where I wanted normality and anonymity but I didn't really have it so when I was trying to then pursue music from the ground up it was sort of faced with this well she's made in Chelsea and even still you know some people will always refer to me as Kaggy from Made in Chelsea and I've, I've had to kind of make peace with that because I know that's not who I am anymore mm. but it's also part of my journey to getting where I am and sometimes we need to be faced with exactly what we're not to really find out who we are. So I want to talk about your drinking, which you've now alluded to as being curious, you're curious sober. At what point did you start to think, mm, I'm using my drinking or alcohol as a bit of a crutch and to get me through something that's tough or I can't do it in moderation. It's this all or nothing pendulum that swings. It was a sort of discovery that went on throughout my 20s. I think binge drinking was really normalized in our social circles and so it was hard to recognize where there may be casualties and where actually people would just be fine because you know the thing about alcohol is it's a very personal thing and there's a huge spectrum to fall on whereas especially in Britain there's normal drinking and then there's AA you know and normal drinking is often quite excessive drinking mm. And so I kind of was like, well, I started to recognize that normal drinking wasn't working for me because I had this switch that would go. And it was really hard to tell when that would go. It was around like three drinks. And sometimes I could have three drinks and it would be totally fine. And sometimes I would have three drinks and then like I would just take off like a rocket. And I had this sort of alter ego persona that many of my friends know as Katrina, which we've discussed, who is really this extraordinary, she doesn't give a mm. fuck. Like, mm. I don't know if I can say on this. Yeah, yeah, of course you can. But she would just cause mayhem. 
and can be the life and soul, you know? Mm. Like, but the, what was so bizarre is what happened later on. It was like this sort of Jekyll and Hyde thing where I would really have these, these blackouts. I wouldn't, I would be walking, talking fully animated, speaking with people, you know, running around, and I would really have no recollection of it. And that's what started to scare me because it, I'd become so disconnected. And I realized that I was using alcohol to sort of disconnect and escape. When I saw that, I couldn't really unsee it. But the journey to, you know, where I am now has been a long road. And I have a huge amount of empathy for anyone that's going through it because it wasn't that I was addicted. And who knows whether I ever would have been, but I could see that possibility on the sort of train that I was on and the behavior that was normalized. But also I didn't resonate with AA. I remember actually by chance when I was living in LA, I ended up in the most sort of LA extraordinary story at an AA meeting in the theater where Greece was filmed in Venice Beach. And it was, you know, no pun intended, the most sobering experience because hearing everyone's stories of their daily struggles. And I think when addiction kind of takes its grips like that, it is this monster that people have to address, like face every day and, it, and it's a challenge. So I was kind of like, I definitely don't feel like I'm there or want to be there. So this is something that I need to address. And for me, it was when I discovered Ruby Warrington's Sober Curious podcast, and she has a book called Sober Curious. And I remember listening to the whole thing and just really resonating with the way people were talking about drinking, sobriety, why they don't drink, or why they've like reduced their drinking and understanding that there was a whole spectrum of people talking about it. And it gave me the courage to kind of begin that journey myself. And part of that path was to go to things like parties and everything and abstain from alcohol. Because what I would do historically was I'd have these periods of sobriety and not drinking and then I'd go out something and just go completely crazy and then feel a lot of shame and then like hide again and then repeat. And that's when I started to really recognize my social anxiety and how uncomfortable I found it. But actually when I had the sort of victory the next day of feeling like I'd chosen myself. Mm. I always I always look back at it as that was my first real act of self-love. I didn't know it at the time, but rather than trying to people please and fit in and just like go with whatever anyone else was doing, I was choosing myself. I wasn't self-betraying. And the next day I felt so great that I was like, okay, this is like how I can rewire my brain and my pattern and the more I did that, the easier it became. And now, you know, the term sober curious works for me. And I recognize that I'm quite unique in this because I like to allow myself the freedom to have a drink in an occasion that feels fitting. And those are very, very few and far between mm -hmm. because chemically it does not agree with me. I don't know whether I like traumatize myself from drinking, but my body, I will have like anxiety from very little alcohol and mm. I'll often have dreams around going out and like ruining my life basically mm. it's really fascinating what the what the brain can do and the body just to send you these reminders of like 
doesn't really work for you. So I'm just going to send you this dream. And it, I would wake up with this sort of anxiety of like, I don't want that to happen again. So yeah, it's been a really interesting journey that I haven't, yeah, that I'm still unsure where it will lead because some people are like, oh, well, maybe you'll get to a point where you feel so grounded that you'll be able to drink again in a normal way or whatever. But I don't know. I'm guessing it's more the idea behind it. If you don't put something as an absolute ban. So for me, you know, if I don't say to myself, right, I absolutely cannot eat this type of food, it becomes yeah, way more appealing. Totally. Whereas if I say to myself, actually, each time I confronted with that thing, I can ground myself and think, do I really want the ice cream? Exactly. Or is it going to send me to a complete path to self-destruction yeah. and a binge? Because when it became this sort of, it's like that feast or famine kind of thing. And that's what I would do is I'd be like right I'm never drinking again mm. that's it I'm never drinking and you know so many people say that after a big night they're like that's yeah. it I'm never drinking and you do set yourself up for a fall and I appreciate that again this is very unique and personal to me but when I tried to abstain completely and then I'd have a sip somewhere or something then I'd be like oh well I've ruined it now yeah. so I might as well have more and it created that kind of shamey cycle whereas now it's like giving myself the opportunity and the choice in every situation feels more empowering for me no I mean I can see exactly why it works and it's it's what happens with food exercise you know more processed addictions which you can't just completely abstain from and it's a very well trodden path and it does work so for some people who it hasn't got to that degree I think like you say it is a matter of degree if, if alcohol or if drugs have become an absolute demon in your life and you just cannot press that moderate button then it can be easier just to eliminate all choice and some people do it with food as well they say absolutely no sugar no gluten and for people in Overeaters Anonymous that can be really really helpful mm -hmm. but I found that as soon as I say absolutely not then of course my brain just starts fixating on it and I start plotting all these different scenarios and then the pressure cooker builds 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 and then to the point of it just wanting to explode and then it's like this sort of absolute sort of landslide of shame self-destruction yeah and I think it just depends you've got to work out how your mind works yeah and and not reaching that saturation point and so it's sort of I almost see it as like you sort of feed it bits and then you withdraw and you feed it bits and, and instead of it letting letting it build up to this mountain that's suddenly just gonna yeah and I think there's a bit of like trial and error in it I mean I write in my book about trying everything of like the three drink rule and the only drinking wine or only drinking spirits only drinking champagne and all of these <laughs> things and then I'm being like none of them work but I I also recognize very clearly for me now that if I'm with someone that I feel safe and calm with and especially if we're abroad that's a situation where it's absolutely fine but for some reason in London it's like it's not really fine. I think honestly, because I've just had so many wild nights in London and then also big parties. I cannot really drink at big parties because I know that I feel anxious. And then if I have one drink, I go, oh, I feel a bit better. And then I'll start having more and more and more. And it's hard to kind of see how much you're actually drinking. So that's like, for me, what I know, I'm like, big parties are just a no. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. 
They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of and. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the AND Partnership's belief in the power of AND, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND Partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AND Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. Do you remember when we went on that trip to LA and we had that so two weeks so we were like Thelma and Louise and it was when you were trying to move into acting and your singing was had already taken off a bit after Made in Chelsea. I've spoken to you when you've been back in LA since then and LA for you seems to be quite a triggering place. When I went there, I went there just before Christmas and I did, I felt really uncomfortable and wanted to just get back basically because I think it just reminded me of the time when I was living there. When you and me went, it was great. It was a great holiday. It was glamorous. It was, you know, <laughs> doing the hikes and having these extraordinary meetings with these massive agencies. And I just couldn't like believe what was happening. But then the reality that often people realize when they go to LA and move there is you never have a bad lunch there. So everyone's always very positive, promising you the world, but it is tough up there. And I feel like if I went now for the first time, it would be very, very different. Although I don't think I, it appeals to me now. But I just was feeling quite unanchored in myself. But also I didn't want to be in London. I, I had left a relationship that I was in at the time and LA felt like the answer. And I think that I, you know, pursuing music and acting, that's what I really wanted to do at the time. And LA felt like the right place. But I just like many people do, I got quite lost there and found it quite a lonely time. I think even in the sense that it's very spread out, it sounds so silly, but a lot of people I've spoken to find that because it doesn't really create a sense of community or being able to spontaneously go and see someone. It's all like you're in your car going to get a coffee, you're in your car going to work. And yeah, and then I was living on my own and working in a studio and I was surrounded by people that now I'm like what's I doing I just got very lost out there and I found it hard to navigate and I don't I wouldn't say I find it like triggering now necessarily but it's just doesn't feel like my place I think when you when the facade of LA kind of slips and you mm -hmm. see that there's quite a dark underbelly to it that we all kind of witness through the the Me Too movement and wake, it's hard to unsee. And I feel that there's a lot of great opportunity in LA and it's got a, a magical sort of aspect to it. But there's also a sadness because there's a lot of drifting souls chasing the same dream. It can be a real melting pot of different egos. And I think when you get these huge egos coupled with people who are really trying constantly to be on the make and they're waitering or waitressing in restaurants, trying frantically to network all the time. There's a lot of, there, there's a, just a big juxtaposition between the, the haves and the have-nots. And I yeah. think it's a place of massive contrasts. 
oh my God, so much contrast. And it's such a transactional city. The thing is just the way, like you say, the haves and the have-nots like interact in this exchange of sort of money, power, beauty, youth. It's all very fascinating to to kind of watch. But equally, Mm. the first question you get asked usually in LA when you're at a party is like, what do you do? And really what people mean is like, what can you do anything for me? And, you know, as dark as it sounds like, what I witnessed with men in positions of power in the entertainment industry, the way that they would just take advantage of young women that were there to kind of make it was quite sinister. Were you having any therapy at that point when you were living there? And did you think maybe I should get someone to just talk to occasionally or have an outlet? No, it didn't really occur to me then. I, I was so laser focused on that if acting or music took off then I would be happy Mm. and I placed all my worth and value on the outcome Mm. and the success of my career to the extent where I felt so much shame when I came back to London and I felt very much with my tail between my legs because I it hadn't manifested in the way that I hoped and I hadn't realized my dreams in the way that I anticipated but within that sort of lostness, I actually was able to get really clear on the fact that perhaps I was chasing things for the wrong reason. And actually, perhaps I was pushing something that just wasn't feeling natural or aligned anymore. And, you know, part of my whole work now around Saturn Returns is like, I really view people's rock bottoms as synonymous with spiritual awakenings and an opportunity to build solid foundations on something of of truth and meaning. So within, you know, feeling that way, I actually came back to London and then started something totally new. But the idea of Saturn Returns was actually conceptualized in LA. Mm. So that's kind of an interesting part of the the story. When I was there and I was feeling very anxious, I was struggling with my sleep. I hadn't like found like a real crew of people Mm. out there. And I remember connecting with this girl and she took me to like some women's circles and things like that. And obviously LA is a very quote unquote spiritual place. It's got a lot of these practices it has for a while, but I didn't ever think, oh, I'm going to move into that sector. It was more when I did some of these things, I felt a sense of calm, which was the thing that got me through. And I found teachers and practices like Abraham Hicks that I would listen to every single night to kind of help with my insomnia and then when someone told me like one of my friends said oh you're about to go through your Saturn return and that's probably why you're thinking this way I was like that's an interesting thing and then I wanted to write a tv show but I actually started writing one as many people do when they're in LA they write a script sort of a rite of passage (laughs) but then I as many projects I've had I sort of parked it so I was like oh well no one will ever look at this and then I went back to London, was doing music, putting out music, having a bit of success there, but still not really feeling like it was what I was supposed to be doing, but scared to admit that at this point because I'd been doing it for so long or saying that I was going to do it for so long. And then, you know, the opportunity to create a podcast kind of came along. And because of all the experiences that I'd had in my 20s from business and doing things with certain people, I knew like how I wanted 
it to go. And then I knew I wanted to bring that concept of Saturn returns and put it into a a toolkit for people that were going through something similar, you know, going through times of transition and change and to give them a bit of an anchor point that I didn't have. So it was quite a beautiful like thing to go through in a way because if I hadn't had that time in LA and that experience, I might not be doing what I'm, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. And as you say, it's when something's conceived in a place that's, it holds some horrid memories, but then there's also, it's a silver lining and something that is a rock bottom always has, there is an epiphany that often arises out of it because that's why we hit these rock bottoms. And some people have one, some people have multiple rock bottoms. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes you such a strong person and actually having an awakening, which you can then execute or you can in action when you come out of that or whilst you're still in it it then holds such resonance for you and then you're living in your truth essentially yeah and also within when we feel that way which many of us do in our late 20s when we're kind of like we're not who we used to be but we're not quite sure who we are we're in this in between in this I call it a fertile void that's a really potent time to be conceptualizing things and being in tune with what visions are coming to you because during your Saturn return you can really start consolidating those things and bringing them into the material world and I think that that's kind of what my process was like. I Most of the things that I want to do in my life now for the next 10-15 years all came to me at that point in LA when I was just really alone a lot of the time with my thoughts. I was like I said, I was working in the studio, but I was just, yeah, just kind of got really clear on what I wanted to do with my life. So talk us through what happens in your Saturn Returns. What exactly is a Saturn Returns for people who haven't read your book or listened to your podcast? So your Saturn Return is something that happens at around 29 and a half years old. It will be slightly different depending on your birth chart and your placement of Saturn, but it takes that long to orbit back to the same place in the sky it was when you were born. And within the realms of astrology, this is a big moment of personal growth and transformation because Saturn is associated with karma, with discipline, with responsibility, with restriction, with boundaries. And so when it arrives, it's like an assessment from the universe on how authentically you've been living. And it also confronts you with whether or not you've been living up to your potential, which many of us haven't been. And it really brings to the surface all the reasons that we are in our own way or we're not actually showing up fully. And that's why it can bring many rock bottoms as well because it will strip anything that's inauthentic. So breakups are incredibly common during this time, big career changes, often people move country. And while seemingly from the outside, we'll view it as random or like if someone suddenly changes job and starts a new business and like where did that come from usually it's been brewing in them for a while but just their Saturn return is this moment where they want to execute it where they're like okay it's now or never and it can be quite a rude awakening because we think the direction we're heading in and the life that we're creating is the right one because it's what we've been doing and we may be ticking the boxes that society tells us that we need to tick or our families approve of And it can strip all of that stuff away and we feel very raw in that process. But ultimately what it seeks is your purpose and your truth. So it will kind of rebuild things with healthy foundations so that 
the idea, I guess, is that when you go through your next Saturn return as you're approaching 60, which is all about legacy, you can start to kind of implement what you want your legacy to be. And that's based on something that is truthful and meaningful to you. So if your life isn't really aligning with your values and you're in the wrong situation, you can be pretty sure that it will uh, flip it upside down. Yeah, and I, and as you were speaking, I was just thinking, and I hadn't had this thought before, is that it's interesting what COVID did for those of us who were in our Saturn returns during that phase, mm. because in a way, if it's stalled and you're then physically restrained from being able to pursue a dream or do it, it's whether that wave then passes and that opportunity and that drive for um, t- for two years. So for my, because I'm a year younger than you, so my Saturn return. I mean, was really six months, say, before lockdown, eight months before lockdown. And my life has gone in a completely different direction following lockdown. So it would actually align with my Saturn returns, but it took, it was slightly delayed by, I mean, it was delayed by, say, a couple of years. But what's been delayed by a couple of years? I say my pursuit of that new goal or that new path mm-hmm. that my, I want, or that new direction that I wanted to take my life in. Because of COVID. Because of COVID. And I think because COVID, for me, certainly someone who had suffered from you know serious mental health issues before then, I think COVID exacerbated those. And so I was then completely hitting another rock bottom, which I had to go through mm. and, and sort of sit that out, as it were, and get the right help and to get myself on a healthy enough level in order to then pursue that next chapter yeah. of my life. But for some people, say, who didn't suffer with mental health issues or for listeners who maybe had anxiety or an issue that arose as a result of COVID, say, which a lot of people did, they developed issues during people are still kind of managing exactly yeah I mean you know we have to acknowledge that that was a collective rock bottom Mm. and the collective trauma that everyone experienced and the personal and collective crisis that was going on with like if people were just on survival mode that's totally fine and if all you did was just get through that's fine I think people it's this weird one now where when I'm talking with people about when I last saw them all time, it's like, was that two years ago or five years ago? You know, it's really messed with our heads. I think that I found COVID actually, I definitely didn't find it easy, but because of what I went through in LA and it was almost like I was in isolation. Mm. So I kind of had got so used to my own company that I actually found it okay. Yeah, and it was interesting speaking to you during COVID because I remember when you started recording your podcast. I started it before, but it aired, we went into lockdown and I had recorded, I think, six episodes. And I was like, is this, you know, all the brands pulled out and everything. They were like, oh, we're just going to wait till this is over. And it was that sort of decision of, do I put this out on my own accord or do I wait until the world normalizes? And thank God I put it out because that's really where we got our core audience and we have not lost them like the people that found Saturn returns during that time I honestly believe it was like a lifeline for them because people were just all their sort of safety and security and the structures that kept them going just vanished overnight Mm. and they were just left confronted with stuff that they didn't know how to manage or deal with so it was weirdly divine timing in many Mm. ways putting the line at the end of every episode is you're not alone and every single person was feeling so lonely Mm. and that was just a coincidence 
And since then, because I, I never knew until I started reading your book, until I started listening to your podcast, I never knew about your poetry ever. It's something that you've kept very, very hidden. I, I now want to see the tome of Kagi's poetry <laughs> when that's going to be. I mean, that is what I want to do next. I think because it was something that I did as my own way of alchemizing the pain and the melancholy and all of these things. I did it intuitively from a very young age. So mm. my my journals are just filled with poems and they are heartbreaking and hilarious because some of them, it's like, I don't know how I even knew those feelings. Do you know what I mean? From mm. such a young age, but then also some are very, very funny. There's one actually that I'm thinking of that's about <laughs> my hamster dying. <laughs> it was like so serious it was like indie the hamster and it was just talking about basic like this journey of finding the hamster dead but it was I was remember how traumatized I was so I went and wrote this poem so yeah it's like my greatest like window into myself reading my poetry and reading those journals I would love to share more of it I still a bit like the music I still have quite a lot of resistance there because I always just wrote whenever I felt like it. Whereas if I'm going to kind of put it out, I have to push myself a little bit. And to be honest, I haven't been writing as much poetry in the last couple of years, but don't worry, I have plenty from before. But yeah, it's a great love of mine. And what, at the moment, what's sort of ongoing and what's next, apart from the poetry, what's next? So the main thing we've been working on at the moment is the courses for Saturn Returns, mm -hmm. which was always my intention when I started the podcast is to create something that was supportive and interactive for people that were going through their Saturn Return or kind of at a rock bottom or having like a bit of a, I don't know where to go or I don't know what my purpose is or struggling with the things that we go through in our late 20s. And the course is kind of a, a seven part, seven modules of this journey that kind of takes you through looking inward and kind of discovering stuff about your purpose, identity, using the principles of Saturn with structure and boundaries and getting to a place where you feel really authentically you through like journal prompts and audio meditations and stuff like that. So that's been a project that I've been working on for the last year which has been amazing, but it's been a bit of a beast mm -hmm. to kind of bring it all together because I've never done something like that. I'm really excited to put that out into the world. And then after that, I did do a music project. I actually did it during lockdown, which I probably shouldn't have, but it was work. But me and a producer went and did this project together. We went away for like 10 days and wrote this body of work and I then went to LA that's why I was in LA before Christmas and we were producing it and yeah it's sort of like for me with everything that I'm doing with Saturn Returns and everyone I'm speaking to I realize the importance of creativity mm. of putting creative stuff out into the world I think it's crucial for our own happiness and also for other people like it gives them a lot of joy and it doesn't matter if it doesn't look like what people say it should look like. You don't have to conform to any anyone else's standards. I just want to be able to put out meaningful things into the world that make people happy and make me happy. And that's kind of what I'm doing. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you're not creative, you can't find purpose. I think creativity is what makes us grow and makes us feel inspired. And as you say, it's it's giving and it's hopefully giving allowance to other people and permission for other people to do the same thing. Because yeah. essentially, I think as humans, our minds like being creative. If we stifle that creativity, we just feel like we're robots that are operating in which we do, which, you know, the system we live in kind of encourages us to disregard those parts of ourselves and operate in this very systematic, robotic way. And I kind of want to rebel against that and show people that you can do it differently. Kagi, it's been such a joy to have you here. And I'm literally, I could talk to you for hours and hours, but plenty more where that came from for the two of us. But Thank you so much for taking the time to come because I know how busy you are at the moment and it's a real, real pleasure to have you here. Of course, thank you for having me. I loved it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word.